0: You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. It's a little bit like, um, you know, sometimes the world is turned upside down and you don't actually realize that actually that may be the the normal. <laughs> it's not that even the new normal, that is actually the normal. But if you come into the business, let's say I came in with the uh, the conclusion of the Uruguay round, that's when I basically concluded my studies on international trade and then... Uh, uh, you know, the uh, full speed ahead, uh, you had the ITA and the perilaterals and you also had a uh, couple of interesting accession going on, so there was always momentum and also you had the, um, the launch of the Millennium Round, or which was eventually became the DDA, so there is this uh, belief that everything is supposed to be constantly going up and if you come into a professional life or even if you are born in during a time when the economy is just going up or the politics is just or in and a particular organization is just moving forward. It gives you an idea that in a constant escalation and uh, is, is the norm and then everything collapses and people just turn around and say, OK, now we are back to normal again. What do you mean this is normal? That can't be. That was
1: Josu Lee Makiyama. I am Rodolfo Rivas, your host. And this is my podcast. Thank you for listening. Fosuk is a leading author on trade diplomacy, EU-Far East relations, and the digital economy. I enjoyed catching up with him during his recent visit to Geneva. I have known him for a while, and we've talked and exchanged messages. But this was the first time I met him in person. And it was an excellent opportunity to learn more about him and his thoughts on various topics. He knows plenty about diplomacy, international relations, and trade amongst many other things. During our conversation, we cover his superhero origin story, how trade diplomacy has evolved, and some of the challenges ahead. I was thrilled to get a chance to talk to him and have it on record. You're welcome back anytime, Hosuk. Before even uploading this, many asked when this would be available, because he is kind of a celebrity. Well, it's out now, I hope you enjoy the conversation. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help spread the word by recommending us to your friends or your enemies. A small act like liking, and subscribing and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. Thank you. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in the conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. Just We've been contacts
0: on social media for a while, but it's the first time I actually meet you. I'm thrilled to have you. I'm thrilled to be here, Rodolfo. It's a, it's a great pleasure, and we've been emailed back and forth and uh, yeah, on different issues, so it's a great to meet finally. Yes, yeah, so you're back here in Geneva.
1: Can you tell me a bit about you? Where, where are you from originally?
0: Well, um, I'm Swedish, believe it or not, and um, actually uh, there was a flying identity passport control uh, here just now at the airport, and actually the, uh, the controller just said, well, that's something I didn't expect, <laughs> and we had a good laugh about it, but now indeed I am Swedish, uh, I don't look Swedish, uh, this is a podcast so you can't see me, but I do, I do have a Far Eastern background, uh, but I'm uh I was born in Tokyo uh, and uh I'm I guess ethnically uh Korean slash japanese uh de- depending on how you look at it and uh yeah and uh but I did grow up mostly in Sweden. And you grew in, up in Sweden? Yeah. And educated here and there. So uh yeah. So I Well, I think Pascal Lamy would say I'm made in the world, (laughs) but I don't feel very made, to be honest.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But how was the experience of growing up in Sweden? Uh, I imagine that in Sweden, being like a very homogeneous country,
0: how was it growing up there? Well, indeed, I mean, it is a very uh, homogeneous and it's indeed, to many degrees, um, a monoculture. well, let's face it, I mean, in the 80s, uh, I came from Japan, which was a cacophony of information, music, culture, uh, consumer culture. Remember Walkmans? Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and then uh, of, I mean, it's a country of 100 million people, and then you suddenly come to a country that has less than eight and you have two TV channels and they stop broadcasting at 10 o'clock because people should go to bed. <laughs> so, and they're both state-owned. So, obviously, it was a huge difference uh, in terms of, well, cuisine, uh, culture, of course, language, and uh, even the education system. And, uh, and also, one thing that I'm constantly reminded of is if you grew up in Far East in the 70s, and the 80s, uh, there is an immediacy to the Cold War that was constantly present. And Sweden being the most peaceful country in the world, you're very, very far away in the news from what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening in sub Sahara and etc. So, yeah, uh, Soviet Union and the, uh, Ronald Reagan seem very, very far away <laughs> in those days. So it was very different, and, uh, but also, as you point out, Coming to Sweden was perhaps uh, also a little bit of um, a shock um, because well not just because everything is very different but also because there's peace and quiet and uh, there's actually um, a challenge or a chance to become who you want to be. Uh, It was less competition obviously and it was a completely different also approach to globalization and international affairs because in those days, Sweden was not a member of the European Union or the European Economic Community in those days and uh, it was not a part of alliance. Uh, whereas, of course, uh, Japan and many countries were firmly within the uh, the Western uh, strategic umbrella. So being like a... Uh
1: like in this bubble, which is not so dissimilar to here in Geneva. <laughs> what, what was it that attracted you to like international affairs? Uh, was it something that was like in at, at at the dinner table? How was how was it like given to you?
0: Well, I mean, uh, like all migrants, com- uh, you know, uh, children. I- I'm sure that. Uh, my family expected me to become an engineer. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I had always interest in international affairs and partly because of that uh, contextualization of, let's say, Cold War uh, 70s and the 80s in Japan, it has a very, very deep influence. And also, one of the things that really drew me to uh, commercial affairs and commercial diplomacy was the fact that Japan was very successful uh, in those years, uh, both in terms of industrial policy, but also in terms of trade policy. MITI, uh, as he was called then, uh, Minister of International Trade and Industry, uh, was basically running the country as Western literature would have it. I don't think that is exactly the case, but there are a lot of literature written uh, about the, the, the Japanese model. and. Uh, And also, it was a little bit of a shock coming to Europe and realizing actually, for example, in law school, uh, a lot later in life, uh, that actually international trade was not something that was necessarily high on the agenda of the debate. It was not prioritized. Um, I mean, if you look at the news uh, in Asia, you will find the, uh, the exchange rate towards the dollar like on the news every day, and that's not necessarily top line news uh, in Europe. So that was a little bit interesting how less appreciative or maybe how lesser importance that is paid to international trade versus other policy areas.
1: So that's what attracted you, that it was like the underdog?
0: Uh, Maybe my grades weren't good enough (laughs) to go into criminal law or other uh, uh, areas of law. I did also economics. And in the sort of the, uh, in the Venn diagram between law and economics. This is where they. Yeah, yeah. that's, you have trade. I also specialized in competition. And so microeconomics and trade. And you could also say that actually international trade is a kind of a, External dimension of competition policy, right? So, uh, yeah, there is a. I've always been interested in commercial uh, diplomacy and uh, industrial policy, uh, yeah.
1: So, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned industrial policy because for a while we didn't talk much about the uh, industrial policy here, but now we're talking a lot about industrial policy here at the WTO.
0: Yeah, indeed, it's really back, isn't it? Yes. And uh, I mean, you can you can phrase the internet well. You can frame industrial policy as almost anything. Yeah. Uh, but uh, obviously, uh, you can compare the emerging market paradigm, uh, going from the uh, well. First of all, post-war industrialization and going to the middle-income trap, and growing out of that, and you know, the productivity race and the government's role in it. And that's always going to be different depending on what kind of culture you have and what kind of market model you have. Uh, I'm inclined to say that uh, uh, it's um, maybe a uh, pivot that goes back and forth. Uh, during certain periods, we've had a lot of laissez-faire and market liberalisation and deregulation as um, means to grow your market. And there are certain circumstances or let's say cycles in history where uh, the economy does particularly well when the government steps back and actually the private sector can do its job. But there are also periods when, or circumstances I should say, because it also depends on the country where you need to avoid market failures. And uh, certain countries, uh, they may be landlocked, other countries might be extremely dependent on a particular markets, obviously uh, there some countries are more prone to market failures, and that requires certain amount of market intervention and uh, I'm not black and white when it comes to industrial policy, but what when we talk about industrial policy now I think it's it's basically about subsidies yeah. and uh, and particularly industrial subsidies and I think there is a long historical well track record that shows that they can be pretty counterproductive. Yeah.
1: Uh, I'm interested in your take because I think that one of the, not not the only one, but I think a big success story of how South Korea became uh, developed is one of the, it's touted as one of the success stories in the last, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years maybe. how how because you talked about uh, a lot about Japan, but how do you see these from the point of view of Korea?
0: I mean, it is interesting because it's um, it's a development path uh, that began in particular with Japan in 1945, but also Korea is a parallel history, um, uh, and they go through similar paths and even through same sectors. Uh, industrialization through light manufacturing, first textiles, and then you go into yeah, uh, light manufacturing, like motor vehicles, it's the classic example, and then you go into assembly of electronics, mostly through processing trade, and then uh, you go into more sophisticated garments and you become an ICT hub, etc. I mean, that, that path is so clearly drawn. And uh, you can almost see how far behind the country is and you know exactly, yeah, where, yeah, yeah, you know exactly where, let's say, uh, uh, mainland China is going to be in, let's say, 20 years, because you can almost pinpoint at what stage they are in their development. Now That's absolutely true. And also I think it's quite interesting, and this is perhaps a little bit of my personal history. Uh, I very often repeat that, you know, the, um, well, international trade has moved, well, literally (laughs) hundreds of millions of Asians across the poverty line and in my case I have to admit that two of them were my parents they are from the 1930s generation so uh, they are very I mean they were in their teens uh, at the end of the second world war and so obviously they saw through all that and that has been part of my family uh, history I guess. Okay I want to go a bit back so you
1: you went to law school Yeah, in Sweden. Yeah, and when you were in law school, you said that you focus on economic law. But what were some of the other topics that informed you when you were becoming a professional?
0: Well, uh, I mean, law school uh, from the continental European model is pretty rigid, meaning that there you have to take certain specific subjects exactly and uh, it's yeah. not like in the u.s that you can pick yeah the curriculum that you can choose is like the last <laughs> that last two three months <laughs> of the you know an education that's almost five years long so uh i don't think there is a much of uh flexibility there so now i have to go through it all and but i have to admit that the um, uh, there are certain countries where law is actually comes closer to a technical education, meaning that they actually teach you a craft. And then there's that other more philosophical aspect of law or the political aspect of law.
1: Which I imagine that's what you're more attracted to.
0: Yeah, and uh, I guess that in Scandinavia, uh, whether you're looking at Economics, uh, or business administration, or if you're looking at law, I mean, social sciences tend to be very much craft-oriented. I see. Uh, so uh, yeah, and then uh, yeah, which is perhaps the reason I went to other universities after that. So. Um,
1: and then you studied economics as well. Yeah. In parallel, or it was afterward.
0: Uh, I did that in parallel, and I didn't do it very well. (laughs) Neither of the subjects I would add. But Uh, you took, I imagine, the things that you wanted from each,
1: like uh, what you were talking about, the Venn diagram. Yeah. Um, But then, so what was your first professional experience after
0: studying? Well, I I tried to think. Uh, The the fact, uh, one of the things that I kind of regret is that I didn't practice law very long. Uh, I had a couple of um, difficult experiences uh, within the, uh, yeah, I mean, basically how rigid that education was, and my interest was always in public administration, Mm -hmm. and in those days we're talking about now, I mean, just on the borderline of late 80s and the beginning of the 90s. Uh, I would say that, you know, the uh, it was the, the rise of the, the professional class, the yuppie was not dead. <laughs> and so public administration wasn't really a cool thing to do. Uh, I don't know if it's cool even now. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> In Geneva, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely right, that, that might be a very universal thing. Yeah, indeed, you're right but I think um, uh, the appreciation for, um, I hate to use the word, but to be in the service of your country or uh, your council or your people, it's something that was probably a little bit more underappreciated than it is perhaps now. Uh, And especially when it comes to trade negotiations or trade promotion or economic policy in general. Uh, another thing that comes to my mind uh, when it comes to uh, that time is perhaps that in that Venn diagram uh, there are not that many job opportunities if you think about it. Uh, so um, I think either you have a calling that this is something that you're really passionate about or you don't. I mean. It, Trade policy is very often a labor of love. It's true. Uh, and you, you don't spend decades negotiating something that is, may not actually come to fruition unless you are actually driven by passion,
1: I think. It is true because I, a lot of people reach out to me uh, mm. that say, like, I'm so passionate about this. I want to, mm. to work in this area. Mm. And I, I don't imagine that that's something that happens in other areas. Like, this yeah. truly... You have to have that calling or else, mm. yeah, and not talking even about the limited areas where you can work. Like mm. when, when I started this, I'm like, where can I work? It's this, 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 or this,
0: mm. uh, it's not a lot. Yeah. But my first, to answer your question, uh, I think my first job, like properly paid job in the area of policy slash politics slash law, uh, I may have, Clerk somewhere but uh, uh the one that i distinctly remember as my first gig was actually your first gig uh, what <laughs> no your first gig was so yeah <laughs> was actually i i joined the campaign for sweden to join europe oh ah. yeah so um and hers actually a big secret and i guess that it's not going to be a secret now but now that there's no <laughs> podcast no, but no, i support no, myself through university uh as a graphic designer <laughs> uh, i just had a knack for it uh i can't really explain where and how i got the talent but i was i was good at putting slogans and images together so i worked extra in an ad agency and so when the elections were up uh, we had a referendum I think it was in 93. Uh, anyway, um, those years are kind of blurry. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was my first real job. Uh, I was still in university in those days. But uh, yeah, so I campaigned for uh, Sweden to join uh, the EU and, um, or European Community as it was called back then. And uh, yeah, so I kind of feel passionate about this is perhaps one of the reasons I feel very passionate about the EU because I chose or my family chose to become Europeans and then as a Swede I actually actively wanted Sweden to choose a common destiny with Europe. I mean I'm perhaps known as someone who's sometimes very very verbose about European policy and sometimes I'm seen as a little bit too critical, perhaps.
1: (laughs) That's what what I was thinking. Yeah. But But I think that only the persons who actually love it hmm. can criticize it like that, no? Yeah,
0: and I think that's perhaps the standpoint of basically all the criticism that you have as a think tanker as I am today, which is that I know that we can do better. So, it's almost like uh, one of those, you know, armchair coaches, you know, that's uh, cheering for your favorite team and you kind of know that we can run faster and we can score more goals, and that's very often how I feel about it <laughs>
1: <laughs> well that's, that that uh,
0: I didn't know this, but
1: it, it does kind of inform i mean i don't know you very well, but it does kind of inform a bit of what you were saying because I was thinking about what you were saying you you do seem critical, but you seem like you' are, you are in it like you are it, you're pulling together everything it's not like you are protecting from afar, you are within it. That's the sense that I
0: get. Well, I hope at least I'm always constructive. <laughs> I think so, I think uh, so. Well, I, I appreciate that. But it, it's a very difficult line, it's a thin line. And also very often, uh, I don't engage very much in self-censorship, but sometimes I do know we can't do better. And one of the jobs that you have as an outsider, as a think tanker, is the dreamed impossible. Uh, uh, It's to propose a new trade round because it makes sense. And uh, whereas I am perhaps maybe a little bit constrained and confined because I know it's not going to (laughs) work. And therefore, I'm not going to put it on the table. Uh, The realism, maybe it's a little bit of that craft we are talking about. Uh, It's not enough to have brains. You need to also have the craft in your fingers. Yeah, so uh, it's not all about theory. Um, So I I try to not to criticize people who can't do better. I mean, we have all our policy spaces, and especially here in Geneva, there is only a limit in terms of what you can do. Our policy space now in 2023 isn't great, neither here or actually not in the capitals either. Uh, International trade is perhaps not the avenue that you're going to go if you want to create growth under this, you know, current, uh, inflationary regime. And then trying to push people who can't push any more, that can very often be count. I'm not going to say counterproductive, but I'm not sure what's the utility of that is. I'm just going to put it like that. Um, what, what
1: was next after your experience campaigning, uh, for the European Union?
0: Well, I uh, I joined the private sector for a while, and uh, and then I did my master's in London in European politics and political economy. Uh, and I studied economic diplomacy, amongst other things, and that's basically where I finished my uh, education. And uh, after that, uh, well, uh, aside from a few Sidelines, but I went into trade tri- promotion, uh, posted to Brussels. Uh, I came to Geneva, and, uh, and uh, what did I do after that? Then, uh, in parallel to Geneva, uh, I was actually writing a few think tank papers, which I joined in 2010, I think. So Sorry, w- the year's a little bit blurry. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, but it's a good yeah. uh, chrono-
0: chrono- chronography, chronography,
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, timeline. But when you were here in Geneva, you were telling me that you were like a. I think that right now it's one of the most interesting times, at least uh, here related to trade. But I would so- also say that that period when you were here, 2007, 2010, that was also pretty interesting because a lot was going on.
0: Yeah, it was 2000. Well, probably 2009. 2009. Uh, so eight. Well, a few days into 10, I think. Uh, but uh, it was the post Doha collapse, if I may use those words. Uh, we can admit now that Doha collapsed, right? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Never sure about these things. Uh, but it was one of those times where. Um, there was still a lot of Kabuki dancing, uh, pretending that it's going on. Uh, I think that that lasted even a few years after 2010. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there was quite a bit of blame game. But at the same time, there was this thinking around, so what happens What happens now? What do we do now? So uh was like organ harvesting was flown around a lot. And, uh, yeah, it was... Maybe a peculiar time because it's a little bit like um, you know sometimes world is turned upside down and you don't actually realize that actually that may be the the normal. <laughs> it's not that even the new normal. That is actually the normal. But if you come into the business, let's say I came in with the uh, the conclusion of the Uruguay round. That's when I basically concluded my studies on international trade, and then. Uh, uh, you know, the uh, full speed ahead, uh, you had the ITA and the perilaterals, and you also had a couple of interesting accession going on. So there was always momentum. And also you had the the launch of the Millennium Round, or which eventually became the DDA. So there is this uh, belief that everything is supposed to be constantly going up. And if you come into a professional life or even if you are born in during a time when the economy is just going up or the politics is just or in a particular organization is just moving forward it gives you an idea that in a constant escalation and uh, is is the norm and then everything collapses and people just turn around and say okay now we are back to normal again what do you mean this is normal that can't be i heard actually a very interesting parallel uh, about uh, it was by the, um, the filmmaker, uh, his name is Whit, uh, Stillman, one of my favorite filmmakers. And uh, he has a quote where he talks about the generation that was born into the sexual revolution. They think that that is the norm, you know, the, uh, the lack of uh, moral boundaries. And when things went back to as they were in the 70s and 80s, and the world wasn't actually turned upside down, it was actually turned right side up. But nobody told these kids who became hippies <laughs> that actually the world is uh, turning right side up again. I actually completely
1: relate to that because
0: when I started working,
1: we mm-hmm. concluded the GPA agreement, mm-hmm. and then we did the ITA too. And I was thinking like, oh, like we're gonna be concluding agreements every six months, <laughs> and it was not the case. <laughs> so it, it is totally true. But like you're saying, it's cyclical. So yeah. this comes and goes. Uh, and I remember we had an exchange uh, about an adaptation and when John Le Carré died, a few, passed away a few years ago, and we, I mentioned the adaptation by Park Chan-Woo, that he did a TV show.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but you are also, like, like you mentioning this uh, filmmaker, that mm-hmm. you're also really interested in culture and art and film and music.
0: Uh, I would say no. No? Uh, I mean, uh, I don't consider myself to be particularly cultured. I don't consider myself to be particularly intellectual. Uh, I guess it depends on what the benchmark is. But, you know, (laughs) well, if you compare me to an average, I don't know, a WTO delegate, uh, (laughs) maybe I'm kind of in the second quartile, (laughs) but I'm definitely not in the top. Uh, I think and that is very often the case when it comes to professionals that we we do have a many of us have a very rich personal lives and suddenly i've been surprised by virtuosos uh i used to work with a colleague who uh, was an well i had one colleague that was an expert pianist Uh, we also had someone in the team that actually translated uh, obscure uh Russian novels <laughs> and uh yeah i i I, th- I think it's very um, easy to be deceived by our uh professional facade there's very often much more deeper yes. behind it yeah it is true
1: like, I know people who have written novels and and you wouldn 't even know it like sitting in the meetings here for
0: <laughs> yeah no that's true
1: and uh you were writing here, while well, you were in Geneva, papers for think tanks. Was that something that you were considering at the time? Moving to a think tank?
0: Or how did that come about? I had a few ideas that I wanted to try. And I was in a place, uh, because I was actually here in Geneva, on no, a uh, sort of like a um, terminate contract, which basically meant that after that, there was basically, that was, that was the end. So uh, I figured you can't kill a dead man. <laughs> Actually, uh, what are they gonna do? Are they gonna fire me? So I did write one particular piece, uh, which became sort of my ticket to fame or semi-fame, which was about Gat's consistency of uh, online blocking and filtering practices and basically laying out a hypothetical case of whether uh, it would be consistent with gas to filter the internet. Uh, Nothing much came of it, uh, but it was a pretty plain vanilla legal analysis and uh, until um, a few years later after I published it, I think I was still actually in service. But uh, when Operation Aurora happened in, uh, in PRC, um, a number of tech companies we drew from um, China quoting inconsistency between values and their business practices, and I remember that a major uh, perhaps the biggest internet company at that time uh, made a statement from their legal counsel, uh, their general counsel that actually um, had written a two pager and there were like three four footnotes in it and no, a couple of you. yeah a couple of them were actually. They were referring back to my analysis, uh, maybe suggesting that there is a potential path to litigation in the WTO. And uh, I suddenly received, literally, I guess I must have received around a hundred calls at the time, and I did actually get a call from the company and they called like 4 a.m. in the morning. I didn't know who they were. I thought it actually was a prank call or something. So actually, I told them to call back during business hours and uh, um, thought it was a prank call. So, well, they were just trying to be polite and give me a heads up that actually there is, there's a couple of references to my work. And uh, yeah, and obviously, the interaction between primarily GATS, uh, but also uh, we had the online gambling case that happened around that period. We had the uh, audiovisual case, uh, which is both goods and services, but the whole public morale, uh, the necessity test, and uh, as well as um, yeah, the national security exception was something that came slightly later, but. It, I didn't foresee that it was going to be such a huge area, but I was maybe the first one to put it committed on a piece of paper. Although there were a lot of great thinkers like Tim Wu had thought about it, but he wasn't really a trade lawyer. Uh, Yeah, there were a lot of interesting people looking at a topic from an academic point of view, but yeah, I specifically look at certain countries' commitments. And also that paper came out in uh, uh, China, in Chinese, published by the uh, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. And uh, so the document was completely apolitical. It was not normative in any way. And uh, they made a great translation of it. Uh, I do remember that there was only one translation error. (laughs) Uh, when they took it from English to Chinese, which was that uh, they called me Swiss, not Swedish. <laughs> Otherwise, it was an impeccable I translation. <laughs> so but I,
1: so when, you, when you were working on this paper, it was just out of, you, you had some passion on this topic and you said like, I'm gonna explore it. I don't care what comes out of it. I just feel like I should do it. Mm. And after this, like pretty much it shaped uh,
0: the next stage in your career. It wasn't deliberate, Uh, I mean nobody goes around thinking I want to become a poor academic with no (laughs) (laughs) no guarantees and yeah, Uh, so um, no it it wasn't deliberate.
1: No it was not deliberate. but you, that's that's, I think what I'm going and getting at, you did not plan for it so at Mm. the moment when you were drafting it, it was pure passion. You wanted to study this, <laughs> whatever came next like, shaped uh, f- the next phase of mm. your career, mm. but that was not what you were looking for.
0: Uh, no, indeed true, and I think that's particularly true in terms of services. Uh, unless you have a masochistic inclination, you do services out of actually some kind of a misplaced idealism and a passion, I think you't you don 't you don't engage in that, and services is has been the maybe uh, the area where i met I have many of my f- personal friends in international trade, and many of my mentors also specialized, specialized in um, International trade in services as well. So I don't know. Maybe it attracts a certain group of outsiders within the WTO. Within a niche. Yeah. It's already a niche, and it's you yeah. Know, yeah. I um, I did write something many many moons ago uh, when I was advocating a plurilateral in services. Uh, This was before TISA actually happened, Uh and uh, one of my main arguments was that actually service was always neglected in terms of policy priority, and one of the lines, I I still remember to this day, but one of the lines I had in that piece was that uh, goods and agriculture counselors turn Left when they board a plane towards business class <laughs> <laughs> and we services people <laughs> turn right <laughs> once we board a plane from Geneva so yeah <laughs> <laughs> and
1: uh, right now you're working at this uh, think tank which you are focusing more
0: on European policy not necessarily uh, I would say so uh, what are you focusing uh, If you look at the the last 10 years, we we had in Europe a cycle towards where we went into bilaterals, front and center. Uh, So, EU-Korea FTA, which then opened up the path for the Andean community, CETA with Canada. We also had uh, uh, negotiations with Japan, uh, EPA. And uh, we also, in there in between, uh, we ne- tried to negotiate an FTA with the United States, TTIP, uh, which seems a little bit in hindsight as a um, misplaced political capital, to be honest. Uh, but it's one of the things that we attempted. So we had a l- number of bilaterals. But I must say that I never lost track of Geneva. and um, Maybe it's a generational thing. but. There is a generation that came after me that in Europe that is bilateral first. Yeah. Geneva is a footnote. For me, uh, to this day, GATT is the constitution, <laughs> uh, and Marrakech is the norm, <laughs> and everything else kind of comes out of that. So there is a, I guess a difference in terms of uh, between Generation X and Generation Y, whether you think the bilateral is the norm or the, uh, um, yeah, the multilateral system is the centre. Uh, and it's very difficult to get out of the multilateral way of thinking because it provides a structure, it provides a system. And it's, a, it's a systemic approach to legal thinking. Uh, Yeah, so uh, I would say that um, no, it's Geneva never really left my heart, and uh, yeah, uh, to this day I would do anything to crawl back to Geneva. (laughs) (laughs) If somebody listens to this and wants to give me an internship, you know, do do get in touch with (laughs) Volvo. But I'm curious to see
1: because we were talking about how Geneva is its own little bubble. Yeah. How do you see things, and sometimes I think that, yeah, like sometimes we, we need to see it from a different perspective. How do you see things here in Geneva from Brussels? To see how it's viewed from abroad, specifically from Brussels. How do you see what's happening here in Geneva from Brussels?
0: Uh, first of all, I'm not sure anymore whether Geneva is a bubble. Because you have all the countries in the world, all the way of thinking gathered here, and so basically, it's the uh, careful, <laughs> the crossing point of uh, multilateral system, if you like. So one of the things I would appreciate being in Geneva is that actually you could run into a colleague that's doing a small arms reduction, <laughs> and you would run into someone that is doing public health pre-pandemic. And you would learn a lot. Working methods would be very similar uh, negotiations, uh, but you work in completely different fields. That's something I would appreciate.
1: And but also, but it, you know, it is true in principle. I don't know if it really translates to that cross-pollination
0: of ideas? I don't know if it... No, there's very little (laughs) cross-pollination between, let's say, (laughs) uh, e-commerce negotiations and uh, what have you, something that they might be discussing in ILO, but uh, maybe there is. I mean, more than we think perhaps. Uh, But you would learn a few things, but the craft would be sort of similar. Uh, Drafting an imperfect text But it's better than nothing. Incremental way of thinking and the idea of universal rules that I hope at least still applies across the board. One thing that happens if you come to a place like Brussels is that it is not multilateral, it's regional. Meaning that the world begins at the Atlantic coast, it ends at the Polish border. Uh, And also one thing that Brussels is very different is that it's process-driven, it's not necessarily negotiation-driven, meaning that there is a um, sometimes flabbergasting comitology, a system of how a dossier is handled throughout uh, the uh, throughout the legislative process or a policy process. It's almost like watching the um, um, it, it's like watching um, a factory almost, whereas Geneva is more like a table. And I think that's and that's something that I sometimes miss. Uh, Geneva is actually more human in in lot of regards than uh, Brussels can be, but also the fact that the world doesn't end uh, at the, the borders of Europe. That actually there are concerns about LDCs and we have to be very serious about it. That there are people who don't share your value system. They don't share your point of view and they don't share your political priorities. They don't even share your, you know, we don't even have a common language yet we have to draft and share a piece of text that is going to be our enforceable contract that's absolutely fascinating that's a miracle when it happens yeah that's why it doesn't happen so well. <laughs> yeah
1: that's precisely why and this is what i remind people because yeah. i i always make the analogy that even at my home when we're trying to decide what we're having for dinner it's impossible to decide and we're four people someone wants something someone wants another thing and then you find the lowest common denominator yeah. imagine doing that with 165 members
0: yeah well do you have a security council at home
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I do exercise sometimes veto power <laughs> well there you go <laughs> no, but, but but it is true that uh that agreeing on something especially technical issues that sometimes are related to this mm. next door they're having the, GSI on e-commerce, which is very technical. It's topics that I, I know a bit about trade policy, but some of the topics we're discussing are very technical, and it's difficult even to, to understand them. Let alone come up with a text that will set the standard for, for the agreement.
0: Yeah, no, I mean this is one of the fascinating part of the WTO's work is that you, it's not just about drafting an enforceable contract. Uh, It's more than litigating when there is a violation. It's also a technical understanding that it needs to be relevant. Uh, It needs to have a meaning. Uh, Yet you need a certain amount of strategic ambiguity to accommodate everyone. Uh, And also the drafting skills, Uh, drafting of the commitments and the legal architecture. It's absolutely fascinating. And to me, at least, it's more fascinating than the the, um, the constitutional aspect of domestic law. Because somehow, I guess, what we are created here in the WTO, it's something we built ourselves within this generation. Um, people who drafted it taught me. Um, and this is something that's really tangible, and it's also a living contract. A constitution is very rarely a living thing. Yeah. There are some, you know, there are, in some countries you have deification of the constitution, you don't touch it, it's sacred. And uh, you have a dynamic aspect of the WTO, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why we are where we are now, because that contract we struck uh, in '95 it's not working for some of the members. And uh, you can take a very legalistic approach and say, you signed it, you bought it, and you live by it. And I'm not part of that institutional extremism that says WTO for its own sake. I tend to believe exactly like you were saying before, like if you have 160 plus sovereign members, custom territories, who can decide their own policies and if actually the contract doesn't actually work for some or even the majority of countries, you need to find a new equilibrium. And I do fully understand certain delegations that feel the system is working very well for them, maybe a little bit too well, who's not really keen on any changes and who's not keen on playing the demandeur. For status quo. And then you have on the other side the revisionists who want to change the system and saying that the current system doesn't work and it's working against their favor. And it's, you have a million reasons why you think that the current contract doesn't work, but they don't want to change, they don't want to pay for that change either. They are not willing to play the demandeur. So this is where basically I think the system has broken down. It's not necessarily about the the rules or the way of thinking, or the fact that we are actually talking about international trade. It's just that we can't see a trade off. Nobody wants to pay for a change. <laughs> um, I really like
1: how you put it uh, the immediacy of this generation to where it's created as opposed to a domestic constitution. I had never thought of, of it that way, but it does make sense. That's perhaps one of the reasons why the newer generation feels a, a deep connection, that like passion to this topic.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, I have a friend uh, who used to say that, you know, we still know where all the, the, um, the bodies are buried, <laughs> uh, all the shortcuts we took and uh, all the ambiguities and all the things that we skipped, hoping that nobody would notice and also some of the good stuff we did. Uh, There's always this risk of, um, if you try to set up a new organization, if you're trying to draft something completely, completely new within the WTO, you lose some of that. There is a reason why the system looks and works the way it does, and why certain provisions were drafted in the way it does. You just mentioned e-commerce. I mean, there is a reason, for example, the wording electronic transmissions were used. And and there are a lot of anecdotes around it, I'm sure. So uh, now I, I am sometimes worried about um, yeah people who just want to burn their entire house down and say, okay, let's start over from scratch. At the same time, it's I mean it's like any family or any relationship. You do have to reinvent the agreement every day of your life, if one day, one morning, you wake up and that the contract doesn't make sense and it goes against your fundamental national interest. Everybody knows that you don't have a choice but to at least mentally leave the commitments. So the question is, how many members now see the MFN as actually dead and play along? And how many are actually thinking that No, actually, I'm I'm willing to pay into the system to make it make sense again or I'm actually willing to find that new equilibrium. I'm not so sure.
1: You said you are talking also about, we were talking a bit earlier about how the continuity of uh, the delegates, for example, because delegates come here and they come for a specific period of time, four years, five years, depending on on the member state. Uh, I think that sometimes with that transition, a bit is lost. I feel like for example, during COVID, we weren't meeting here at the WTO. So I feel that there was like a break between the delegates that came and the new delegates where like something was lost. Like some of that understanding, some of those traditions, some of those anecdotes, some of those connecting tissue was lost.
0: Is that well, hopefully they go back to capital and get promoted. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have wise delegations like your own that kept you here for 12 years. Well, so. because I,
1: I do think that there's some value to that and uh, mm-hmm. what you were talking like. Yeah. where I know where the, the bodies are buried. Mm-hmm. But I guess this is the nature of international organizations like this where there's this rotation, mm-hmm. which is meant to nurture, to bring new ideas. But that's also in opposition to to some of these... Continuity that is lost, yeah.
0: and maybe there is also a difference or change in how uh, how Geneva operates now and let's say thirty years ago. Uh, I have a feeling that the Geneva missions were perhaps more mandated to actually negotiate and. Not necessarily strike a deal. I mean, that's a ministerial prerogative. But actually, get the, all the way to the crunch, uh, to the to the final leg, and more decisions or operative decisions and consideration could be taken in Geneva. Uh, that is probably not the case anymore because we don't have negotiations and it's more capital driven. And uh, I mean, there was a time where actually the trade department would post most of its resources not in the capital, but actually quite a significant part in Geneva. Uh, or uh, rather than the bilateral post, they would actually put the most of their thinking and processing power in Geneva. And I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore. So how the Capitals and the Geneva mission interact has perhaps changed Uh, a little bit as well.
1: um, Last uh, comment that I want to hear your thoughts on, because I do feel like a general sense of optimism in what you're saying. How do you feel about uh, the prospects for the next few years? Are you optimistic about it?
0: I had a friend, uh, Professor Brian Hindley, and uh, after a couple of hours of dinner, he found my pessimistic outlook so depressing. <laughs> so he asked me, is there any point in time, <laughs> in the last 150 years, you wouldn't have thought that the world would end 10 years from that date? So. We went from <laughs> mid-19th century, ten, decade by decade, and I pretty realized that there is a reason the world could fail and actually come to an end at any given point in time. And then it, and a couple of times that he actually did. So I, am, I must say that I, I want to be an optimist, uh, uh, but I'm too much of a realist uh, to earn that, title as an optimist uh, I always say you know people who work in international trade uh, they are not glass half full or half empty they are who drank out of my glass kind <laughs> of <a> people <laughs> maybe uh, that's what I become too uh, now I um, it always it will always get Lighter. The question is what price we have to pay for that light and how long we must wait to get there.
1: But I must say that I give you more credit for you being an optimist than I think you give yourself. At least from what you were saying earlier, I do sense some optimism in it.
0: I'm afraid that you may know me better than most of my friends.
1: it was it was great talking to you. I really enjoyed hearing your perspective and hearing a bit about how you view what's going on here in in
0: Geneva. My pleasure. Anytime. It was a great talking to you as well. Thank you, Hossam.
1: This was the wonderful Drivas project. I hope you loved it. And you did
0: it.